Sure, Music Explorers podcast. I'm Jim Jam. As always, I'm Scoot Magoo. And uh, we are back with our book club segment uh, where we talk about books about music. And it doesn't get any more meta from there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so this week we have a uh, book that is a personal favorite of mine. Uh, I'm just going to get out right out with it because this is the uh, the third time I've read this actually. Uh, it is Where the Heart Beats by Kay Larson, uh, and it is a book that is difficult to describe, because um, it's like kind of a biography, but not really, and it's kind of a music history book, but not really, and it's also kind of a spiritual book, but not really. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I will say this is... I thought the frame, and, and I don't mean this as a negative, but this almost felt like a really well done, like book length thesis, where you're like, you know, yeah. you, you compare two things that on paper. I mean, I remember when you recommend this to me, I was like, what? Like, how is it? Like, I thought, you know, is this yeah. a biography? Is this more like a kind of a philosophy book? And I mean, the answer is yes to both of those questions. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it, it I, was interesting how. It was not like it wasn't forced and the two kind of you know through lines merged together really seamlessly yeah i mean it's i i it's it's a super like it's it's such an idiosyncratic book um at the end of the day because i mean i I guess we'll get more into i guess probably more details would be uh helpful (laughs) so this is a book about um it's described as i I think on the on the cover it says uh i think it's zen buddhism it's john gage zen buddhism in the uh the spiritual life of artists i think is is how it's like subtitled um and it's yeah i mean it's it's basically uh talking about zen buddhism and talking about sort of modern art history beginning at the beginning of the 20th century um you know, using John Cage's life and sort of his own journey as a framework, uh, as like a narrative framework, is it? Th- that's kind of the best way I could describe it. But all through this, you know, we have, you know, um, very brief forays on, you know, the works of D.T. Suzuki. We've got little bits on Marcel Duchamp uh, and sort of the, you know, Dadaism, kind of surrealism, uh, and basically anybody that was influenced by john cage which happened to be fucking everybody (laughs) quite a few Um, folks yeah yeah and all the while you're sort of seeing john cage's relationship with eastern thought and sort of how you know he's trying to grapple with his own sense of identity uh you know as a composer just even as a human being and uh yeah i mean it's there's a lot to kind of tease out throughout this so i feel like you know i i don't know see with a book like this when we get into oh likes and dislikes i feel like it's almost antithetical <laughs> in a way because like the whole book is almost about eliminating likes and dislikes mm. um but i think it's also like you know if you want to review you can just go to amazon as well so i i feel like let's just get that side of that out of the way um i'll say 
I I like the book a lot. It's one of my favorite books like ever, honestly. Um, but I mean, I am, I, 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 it's, it's not a perfect book. It definitely has some, you know, I, I think as a scholarly piece of work, I think you could poke some holes in it. Uh, but Scott, I want to turn it over to you because this is your first time, you know, going through this and, you know, uh, you, you had the pleasure of, of torturing yourself by spending two weeks reading this. So, you know, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I think the, probably the best distillation is the fact that the fact that it's so many different things. And, you know, most, most of those things are done well. I do think the framing of, like, the way that she, um, you know, synthesizes Zen Buddhism with John Cage's, you know, not just his composition style, but she also goes into his different forays in art. Obviously, he's most known for, you know, what he did with music and, um, I guess, performance art in a way, which I guess we can talk about that later. Um, like, it was just, it was really genius, I thought like it just it made so much sense once you started reading mm. just how much overlap there is with or and or how much Zen Buddhism informed his composition style and just thinking back to my prior knowledge of his work it just it made so much sense um I do I do think that that pairing made some of the more conventional aspects of the book feel odd even even if like I thought they were interesting like the extended passages about like his his personal life sometimes felt out of place even though obviously this book is trying to be a biography but i think the shift between you know like a philosophy book and you know then talking about the music and art like it just it was trying to be a lot of different things so when there's extended passages Mm -hmm. about which i didn't realize he was a, a gay man so which was was actually genuinely interesting but you'd be reading about the philosophy and like how it kind of tied into something and suddenly you're talking about his love life and his fiery russian wife that he decided <laughs> he decided he wanted to marry on site uh that, yeah like that that specific pack passage stuck out to me because like suddenly where i don't even know if you call it a love triangle where like he's sleeping with this man who i thought was married but then he's sleeping with this married woman but then now he wants to marry like just it was it was like wait a second like what are, what are we talking about here and then, but it, it, it's a fucking soap yeah, opera. Exactly. Honestly, it's a, it, it was like a little bit of a little bit of a, a random drop, even though, again, this is this is doubling as a biography for a tripling. I don't even know, I guess. <laughs> but it, it's obviously a biography about Cage. And then uh, one of my favorite recurring themes, I mean, it really started toward the end of the book. is just talking, <laughs> talking about his affinity for mushrooms. Where like mm, ran- yeah. Yeah, randomly that would pop up and it would be like oh yeah I forgot about that um, so yeah I, it, it's it's odd just because I did like those moments like it was interesting I like how she humanized him how he he wasn't just like this super cerebral composer with like these you know really intense ideas and very particular ideas about art. You know, there was some humanization. He was obviously a very, you know, quirky, introspective, interesting person. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's kind of a weird pro slash con because I did like the disparate elements of the book, but it felt very like there was just so much that she was trying to get across. It, like, again, I guess that's why the, the, the comparison of the Zen aspect to the musical aspect 
was the, the pro and the con of the book for me because when that was being talked about, it you know kind of commanded your attention, very you know kind of heady subject matter, and then when it was interrupted, it was a little bit jarring, like out of nowhere, where you know we're now mm. talking about you know like a like a a soap opera like you said or like his love of mushrooms and foraging and whatnot i don't know like it just i think i think i think that was something i liked and and was a little bit distracting about the book so i don't that was a really jarbled answer but i did i did like it i did enjoy it i yeah. just felt like there was yeah there's a, a, there a, little... a lot going um... on well, yeah, it, it, could be, I, it could be disjointed at times. I got maybe you know what I could have just said that and totally canceled out what I said. <laughs> at times it was disjointed. Yeah, I mean I, I can definitely see that. I mean it's I the thing is it's like even in trying to describe the book, you know, it's difficult. Yeah, you know, and I think it's, but at the same time I don't know like it. Thinking about it now, it it makes all the sense in a way because you know like if you if you read that chapter on sort of like interpenetration you could make the argument that all the chapters are actually interpenetrating in a way <laughs> like you you could really get kind of i guess you could get very meta with it okay. you know to that's harken what, back yeah. yeah that's what i was about to say is that like i feel like you're right that you know in some ways trying to like critique or like give feedback in the book like there's always that was something when i really got into or was reading more about zen and like buddhism in late high school early college it felt like there was always like anything you might say always like there was a kind of a, a you could they could redirect back to like the core like it, it kind of is a a very socratic philosophy in that way where they're just always there's always a means of questioning your your doubts or like questioning your um yeah yeah so definitely and, and i mean i th- that's kind of my favorite part of zen buddhism and stuff like that it's just kind of you know sort of the paradoxical uh nature of it if you look at it from a certain point of view uh it, it's i i love that shit um yeah where to go with well sort of what i'm you curious because you mentioned that there was some scholarly holes I'm, I'm curious to hear you know what, what you might peg as oh, yeah in that regard so i i guess um i guess the biggest thing is that you know this isn't really a biography because a biography usually tends to go from the beginning of a person's life to the end. Yeah. And, you know, if you noticed, uh, it pretty much cuts out uh, about the time that you get to the 60s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, John Cage died in, I think, the 1990s, if I remember oh, right. Oh, yeah, that was... I'm glad you brought that up, because I almost forgot to say that. It really... It's one of those things where you see the sequence of years and then you look at the page count and you're like, are we just going to like totally, because I'm assuming he didn't stop doing interesting things with with 30 years left in his life. (laughs) Like, I know it's, it's one of those things that it's like, I, I, I think it's, I, I, I guess like, I don't know if maybe scholarly holes is maybe the, I don't know if that's the best description. It's more like she would you know it's it's there's some you know decent editorializing going on i guess is that she's trying to really fit you know this narrative to fit her own thoughts Mm -hmm. in a way and um you know i I remember i saw uh i don't i think it was a goodreads review where this, this person said that you know um apparently that uh cage moved away from zen a lot and like chance operations and things like that, oh, that later that's in his career. Okay. Um, I, I don't know how true that actually is, 
but I think that I, I basically wrote down it's just that it's it, I, I, everything that happened is historically accurate. It's just a curated retelling of events. Yeah. And so, you know, that is kind of, you know, so I, I again, but I, I, I think it's worth pointing out that I don't think her intention is to give you a biography of John Cage. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, more to talk about, you know, sort of the spiritual aspect of his life and sort of how he came to it. Yeah. And I think, but I think it's also to meet her own sort of spiritual thoughts yeah. as well. Because I think she mentions it, a couple of times that it's something that is, it's obviously very personally interesting to her. You know, it's something that's affected exactly. her. So. And, cer- and so certainly I, I, to your point, sorry, it's just that um, <laughs> if he did move away from the central topic of the book, later in his life i think that is a pretty good reason not to, not to talk about it you know if it like to, is going to i mean totally I, undermine your again I, i'm i'm not entirely sure how yeah. how much he moved away i'm really not familiar with that latter part of his career mm-hmm. um you know I, I i think it's just because you know when a lot of people talk about john cage you know they always talk about you know they might talk about mushrooms but mostly they're going to talk about sort of the era that she spends the most time in which is you know sort of around like before and after the creation of 433 and sort of the happenings and you know sort of the beginning of the fluxus movement and like little things like that mm-hmm. um you know maybe maybe like sonata and Lewis music for changes like that sort of era is usually what people look to the most because it's usually the most inspiring and you know like half of the part you know half the speeches from from the book silence are like called from like all like all over that part of his career Mm -hmm. you know um yeah it's like it it makes sense in a way uh but i mean not to disregard his later work i i'm just i i just feel like a lot of people are more familiar with it i don't know it'd be like i don't know talking about like mozart and like i don't know i feel like most people want to or you know maybe better example talking about beethoven but like people only really think of beethoven as like oh yeah the da 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 guy <laughs> you know or 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 like they, they think of the ninth or they, they think of him being completely deaf near the end of his life or yeah. you know like whereas he had a whole other career or at least uh other eras of his career yeah you know so it's it, it's just yeah it, it's a it's it's a very curated retelling of events. Yeah, um, but I mean, at the end of the think, day, it, yeah. it, it's it's her book, so she's allowed to do that. I mean, we we yeah. can, we can react to it however she wants, but it's not you know it's not like if, if you write a textbook and you leave that out. Like I feel like that's a pretty serious omission, but it's it, it's a very I, I creative mean, book, and she has her license to do that. Yeah, and, and again, I I don't think the point of it is is to go for you know oh this is John Cage's life. Yeah, it's more yeah. like th- this is Zen Buddhism almost and like this is you know i i think maybe she picked cage because i think more than any other composer you know he was able to fit those pieces together Mm -hmm. like you can see like i mean she talks about you know probably more than anybody else except for cage um she talks about marcel duchamp Mm -hmm. um you know and i i mean again he's probably the closest person who get you know gets closest to zen in a way, or at least that sort of mentality. Um, even though he is, he he would never say yes or no to, you know, about that. But yeah, it's. I, I guess what I've always taken away more from this book is sort of it's talking about you know the spiritual life 
of artists, you know, and sort of how creativity and spirituality uh, often go hand in hand in that, you know, in many cases, it feels like they're one and the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that was always something that fascinated me. And there's just so many little tidbits on how to, not how to be an artist, but just sort of like, um, you know, I, I, I guess like, I don't know, the, 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 there's a lot of stuff that, you know, when I've read it, when, and I, I read this during uh, my, my second run in, at, uh, in grad school, uh, you know, it, it it sort of answered a lot of questions I had about myself sometimes, in a way, or like, no, maybe, maybe I, I, I'm not, I'm not putting that right. Um, I mean, like, like, okay, they, 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 there's one thing that, you know, um, I think maybe what defined Cage's career overall was, you know, a wish to move away from, uh, you know, the traditional idea of art and music as being uh, emotional expression mm-hmm. you know or like some sort of conceptual expression and he wanted to move away and totally and you know think about just you know letting sounds be themselves and that's something i've thought about a lot when it comes to writing um you know just in terms of i i i think i'd look at it a little differently and i mean he kind of touches on this a little bit that you know if like everybody has like their own interpretation of you know, a work of art. So it's like the original emotional expressivity that's supposed to be communicated kind of gets diluted and kind of gets teased apart in all these, you know, weird ways. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. It's more just like, if that's the case, then what exactly is the point sometimes? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think also, I mean, Cage was just, I don't just, just, you know, to to look at sound like that was just you know I I mean that's a very it's a Zen move right there is yeah. is just to, to to be able to just hear things for what they are without attributing meaning to them and simply letting them flood over you and it's it's really it it's a fascinating idea I mean we've talked about this briefly with our uh, episode on deep listening uh, and I mean arguably that's probably where Pauline Oliveros I mean was inspired by it you know I'm, I'm guessing at least a little bit uh because i mean the way cage seemed to have this web of influence was just like amazing in a way yeah because I, I think you know as he outlines or rather as, as the book outlines um like when you base your creation in such deep thought and when you present something in such a unique way I mean, I could totally see how that itself would influence people to a yeah, I mean, degree, it, degree. It's kind of like that, uh, you know, if you build it, they will come mentality. Yeah. But, but it's almost like a, if you build it and show it to people, they will come. Yeah, because, I mean, I think if you look at other composers, obviously they, you know, people are influenced by their, their music and perhaps you could say they're influenced by their approach to composition, but... I can't think of anyone. I mean, I was surprised to see the time. Like, I just, for me, I always, for whatever reason, picture John Cage as like a modern classical sometime in the 60s, like 60s and 70s. That's when he was coming up. And to, to, to read this and see that he was doing these things, you know, decades earlier than like what I had pictured mm. is, is really ahead of his time. But I think that was 
what else struck me is that he he was ahead of his time, but also drawing from really ancient, you know, kind of um, foundational thought that has been around for, for centuries. But the way that he applied it in a contemporary artistic format was was really, I mean, maybe from, from where we stand now, it seems pretty, um, maybe not unsurprising. What's the word I'm thinking? It just, it, it kind of, it makes sense. It seemed intuitive now, but at the time, I could totally see this just being really, um, just really striking to people. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the, I think that's part of the book too, is yeah. just, you know, sort of this history of, um, you know, D.T. Suzuki sort of showing you know, sort of bringing Eastern thought to the West. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I guess that's probably someone who's talked about more than Marcel Duchamp. But, um, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm so bad with names. So he, he's the one who did the the, the urinal, right? Or the, yeah, the, he, yeah the, the, the fountain. Yeah. yeah, I always... I always liked that. I mean, just, I mean, I liked how they brought in, you know, non-musical examples. And that's something I wanted to touch on maybe now or yeah. in a bit is that uh, I guess we could do it now is something that struck yeah. me is there's the commentary about you know um, Cage's music being maybe more in line with performance art or you know kind of ver- you know really pushing the ex- you know the extreme boundaries of music and I wondered if you know the, the, the just the working definition of music that I've always used I forget who came up with it but it's just the, the purposeful organization of sound to be listened to and I wonder if just that you know purposeful intentional whatever you want to say maybe that it can be a little bit malleable just you know kind of the the organization of sound or like the expression of sound you know to be listened to it's just it, 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 can, it kind I of mean, goes to show that like the definition of music is just so difficult to pin down because of people like Cage. it's yeah it's definitely debatable because i mean the thing is like you could argue though that he was nonetheless organizing those sounds yeah yeah because i mean it you know if you didn't stage the happening you wouldn't be listening to it exactly and I mean, yeah it's i mean even something like you know 433 um you know obviously the whole point is that there's no sound you know so like the silent the, the, the silent three movements but it, there's musical instruments on stage and it's you know it's presented and you know it's intended as like a i mean literally it has you know sheet sheet music so to speak it has directions for musicians so while obviously there's no literal sound being presented it just it really flirts with you know that that line between music and performance art because just I don't know. It's just it's really hard to to place it. Yeah, I I guess the I don't know. I always thought of it as I mean, I, see, th- this is the thing with Cage, and, and I think I want to come back to this is that I sometimes tend to think of him as more of a philosopher than a composer. And um, he just kind of used music as one of his main mediums or his primary. Yeah, medium. kind yeah. of. Yeah, but I mean, I I feel like with four thirty three, I mean, the idea is that there there is music everywhere kind yeah, of yeah uh-huh. yeah but um yeah i mean whether it's performance art i i'm really uh, performance art is one of those things that i i'm not um well versed in mm-hmm. um and partially because i've just never been a big fan of what it stands for a lot of the time like it just 
like in I, I don't know if, if you noticed this little tidbit in um sorry there's a fly there's so many flies down here in my office <laughs> the weirdest thing um but they're buzzing might I, be I don't know if, music in a way right what they're buzzing might be music it might, it might be a metaphor. Well, they, they, they don't buzz. They're so tiny that oh. I can't even hear them. Okay. Yeah. So that, that, that um, metaphor slash joke didn't really land, but that's okay. <laughs> anyway, anyway, go on. Yeah. So I don't know if you noticed this little tidbit in the book where he, uh, Larson mentions that Cage, you know, distanced himself from the Fluxus movement pretty quickly. Um, and I found that really interesting because it... it to me, it just seemed like an indication that uh, performance art wasn't really uh, like I, I like, like that it, or at least that like the flux is moving in a way kind of took and perverted Cage's original intention mm-hmm. almost. Uh, and that like instead of making you know uh, a happening that's about nothing, they're suddenly making it about something because they want to imbue it with all of this you know conceptual philosophy and what have you in meaning and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I like that's kind of why performance art is always kind of, I've stayed away from it a little bit just because it feels like it's, it, it's like purposefully enig- like enigmatic. Like it, it, it feels like it's just, you're dicking around with the audience in a way. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that it's just like, Oh, look at me. Like I'm doing something that's so out there and complicated, but it has a meaning though, but you have to search for it. And it's like it, it like, and, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't um, challenge your audience. It's more that I like. It just feels like it's purposeful obfuscation for the point of just kind of gaining attention for yourself. Yeah. Without like I don't know. I, I, sometimes it, it just feels lazy. I guess like, and I mean a lot of. I don't know. There's some modern art that feels really lazy. Yeah. To me, um, and I guess I mean work is like not exactly indicative of quality in an artistic piece. Mm-hmm. It's it's just that I think in in this case it just I don't know. I mean the definitions are definitely being challenged. Yeah. Um, actually, it was interesting. I I kind of want to bring this back to to the talk about Duchamp a little bit because. Um, I, I I really like the way Kay Larson talks about Duchamp's work um, because uh, th- there's another really great book on um, on art history, modern art history. It's called uh, What Are You Looking At? by uh, I think his name is Will Gompertz, I believe. And he was uh, I think he was like the main curatorial director at um, the Tate Modern, if I remember right. Um, and I, it's a really interesting and helpful book, but I think, but he goes completely the opposite with Duchamp's work that he, and he starts with the fountain, you know, and, and he says, this was, you know, Duchamp's point was that ideas can be art. And I feel like Larson is almost saying, no, like I, like Duchamp is saying anything can be art mm-hmm. and that you need to look at the beautiful things around you. And you know, that, you know, it, it's sort of like I, I, I felt like there was almost a more spiritual. I mean, obviously, there's a more spiritual aspect to it, but I've never, I've just never been a big fan of conceptuality, like conceptuality in a way. Like, because I, I, I just feel like art is such a personal thing that to have it 
you know, I, I don't know, I feel like it's going to mean something different to everybody. And so that whole conceptuality, you know, kind of is kind of like a fly in the ointment in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, not to mention that, like, I don't know, like, sometimes the philosophical underpinnings of a work of art can kind of take away from its effect on people as a, you know, like, like I think it's like, I don't know, like sometimes you can get so caught up in that, you know, oh, the themes of it, what does it mean, et cetera, et cetera. And you kind of forget the fact that you're looking at something beautiful. And like, I mean, th- th- again, th- this is me very much kind of going on like a mini rant um, yeah. <laughs> of sorts. Because like, this is stuff I've thought about since I was, you know, an undergraduate. And, you know, like having these professors shove poems down my throat that I thought weren't really good and felt like we were studying literature, but not really actually studying the literature. We were more studying the history around it Mm -hmm. and like sort of what the piece meant in terms of historical context, as opposed to the actual words that were being said and sort of the beauty of the text itself. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually Thomas Merton, the, um, the uh, Trappist monk, um, he had a really great quote about this because I think he had like a similar complaint, but I, I would look it up, but it's, it's somewhere in my notes. Um, and just the mass of notes that are on my computer, yeah. uh, on just, you know, random day. Yeah. Um, uh, so if I could jump in real quick. Uh, yeah. so first of all, I want to say the, the term purposeful obfuscation sounds like a death metal track name and I'm all about it. <laughs> I really, really, I just like, that was just, an, a, a, I really <laughs> just hit the ears nicely. Um, but yeah, this is something that, I mean, just using a personal per, personal anecdote, I think it was in like fourth, fifth grade where we did, like for our class, we like they just assigned us all random artists to present as. And they gave me Jackson Pollock. And I, I was mm. fucking eight years old. I had no idea who Jackson Pollock was. But just looking, <laughs> but looking at the paintings he did, I just, I didn't, I mean, I was eight. I didn't, you know, quote unquote, get it. But I enjoyed it. There was just something about like the, just the massive, you know squalls of color and just how you know just like seeing it you know there was a book that they they gave you to to like reference where you saw just the sheer magnitude of some of these paintings in relation to people in museums and you know know, that was cool great move on i was eight short attention span you know and then later on i think it was in you know college with the humanities unit we're learning about pollock we're learning about picasso and i kind of you know a lot of the conventional ideas about art we've been taught i was like well why is this you know why is this good like some of the Picasso paintings literally look like something a child could do, um, and I mean I think the answer that they gave is it's kind of what you're saying about it. You know, ideas can be art. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you were opining that it was the author was saying that or Yushan was saying that, but I think the, the, the I think it was more like the author to Will Gompert. That was kind of his takeaway yeah. from it. it it wasn't necessarily Duchamp's intention. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, because I mean, Duchamp really didn't explain himself. Yeah, but I'm I'm saying I kind of that that argument kind of works for me. It's just that he was the like, why is someone else who just flips a, like a, a urinal today? Why wouldn't that be as impressive? Because he was the first one, you know, to have the the intention, like you know, to have the 
kind of the gall to make that statement. It was, you know, why Jackson Pollock was one of the first people to present something like that. And I think that's one angle. But also, to your point, when you just, when you see a painting, when you see um, like a, a Da Vinci painting or whatever, like a picture, like the Mona Lisa, the Mona Lisa, yeah, you can maybe extract some additional meaning from it, but it, it in some ways, it kind of is what it is. The meaning is being, t- you know, told to you pretty straight up but what i love about jackson pollock is you can like his painting blue poles for example it kind of i, I love blue poles. i love blue poles yeah. too and you you can ascribe meaning to it and be like oh it's you know it's an abstract forest fire that's what i've always you know that those are like the husks of trees um, but see I, I think that that's kind of what i'm agreeing with i guess mm-hmm. is is that i i but i feel like a lot of like I, I feel like if you looked up an analysis of blue poles, they wouldn't say that. They they would try to say something else entirely. Yeah. And they would try to have that as the definitive idea of it. Whereas like, I don't know. Like this is what I'm talking about. Is like it's not that ideas can't be beautiful. It's that everybody has an idea. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I I wasn't you know trying to disagree with you. For, yeah. For me, it's yeah. like you can. You could take that angle, you could ascribe meaning to it, or you can really enjoy it for what it what it is. And not that you can't do that with conventional art, but just it's a different kind of approach where there's so it's so abstracted, it's not it's not it's not Im- immediately clear what it is or what it could be. And part of it, it's 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 up to you to decide. And I think something like four thirty three, um, that's really a pretty pretty broad extension of that. Like what. And especially, yeah. like, I, I just, I still think it would have been so, even even just to be there to cover it, or, like, certainly to be there to see it for the first time, like, nowadays we, we have the whole, con, you know, the whole context, we can learn about it, we can appreciate it, we can study it, but just experiencing that live and, like, having no idea what was going to happen, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I just, like, you know, the, the, the shifting, you know, cocktail of emotions of being, like, you know, having having showed up and paid to attend something like that and then you know trying to dig deeper meeting because yeah i mean i that's that's pretty that's pretty bold i mean putting the philosophy aside just you know it, it's that it takes a certain amount of i mean it, it's it throughout the book it's clear that cage is pretty self-assured in his philosophy he's pretty you know he's pretty confident yeah. in what he thinks so it's not that surprising to to, to see that he would do something that bold but to put on a performance like that or your people have attended to see you perform and then you know that's you do something like that it's just that's that's quite a statement in of itself even though there there literally is no sound necessarily you know to to in that statement but just the the movement and the idea the philosophy behind it is pretty yeah yeah. i mean it's it's fascinating at the same time i sometimes wonder whether like you know um whether i don't know like 433 is is been a piece that like like pretty much this book has been the only way i've been able to appreciate it in a way mm-hmm. um you know and just be and like sometimes like i feel like if i go long enough without having read this book i kind of go into an anti 433 <laughs> kind of mindset um because like the way larson is able to explain it it just feels so unpretentious because I, I, I think 
I, I, I think a lot of the time I just tend to be like, okay, like it's, it's a cool piece, but is it music in a way yeah. or like I, you know, and I, I mean, you know, obviously the definition is malleable. We've discussed that. I'm talking more about like, you know, I think we've talked about the, um, that, that vinyl box set of, of covers of 433 done by like all these famous bands oh. <laughs> and it was just like like oh okay haha ha, that's cool except you have to pay like a hundred fucking bucks for that or whatever you know and, and you're like you know taking up like desperate desperate time that vinyl plants are or like vinyl plants are so overbooked right now and you're just adding to the problem with your pretentious bullshit in yeah. a way in, but, in my yeah and i feel opinion. like that was something that was interesting like a kind of an internal conflict is i totally appreciate like you put on uh like any like zorn classic kind of strategy or something like that where it's like the, or any type of like spontaneous you know free improv and you just appreciate what's happening you let it waft over you but you're not like you're not recalling on a daily basis like your favorite you know free improv melody so the early free improv sections <laughs> yeah like, like for me i think of like blue monday by new order like that or you know i feel love by uh, you know don yeah, summer like they just something like that where it's just incredibly i you know someone wrote that it's that incredibly iconic you just like that melody just plays in your head and that that you it's not that either experience is like the right one, right way to consume music, but just it's inherently different, you know. It's yeah, just, yeah, definitely. I, I, yeah, it's 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 more like the recording of it just makes no sense. I feel oh, like yeah, it's one of those sure. things that like, like I, I feel like Cage's music in my experience is best experienced live, uh, yeah. because like I pretty much the only music of Cage's that I've really liked is Sonatas and Interludes, and that's just because it's this beautiful set of prepared piano pieces mm. um you know and it's you know like i feel like that's more tangible as opposed to like i i had a cd once uh that had like imaginary landscape on it and like credo and us and things like that and like we're talking about like those performances that you know use uh like the radio as an instrument mm. and like again super cool idea uh you know and i it's something i really like it's something i actually would like to do in a way doesn't work well as a recording though yeah because you know it, it's again I, I think a lot of this stuff is about being in the here and now you know and so it's kind of missing the point yeah and, and um, I, feel, I know i've told this story before but lauren and i actually saw shushu in portsmouth and you know the the more erratic songs that they produced you know i played before she's like i don't get this i don't like this and <laughs> i can't say she came away from the live performance enjoying it per se but like when you know jamie's going crazy and like he's kicking the symbol and i totally i i feel bad i forget his collaborator's name oh um uh, angela sale yeah like she I, I think it was like a kazoo like something some like really shrill you know like it's like you know mouth instrument I, for what, yeah side question have you ever have you ever actually had uh listened to an interview with her before no because she is hilarious like she and jamie are just like a couple of chuckle fucks yeah. in like the best <laughs> way possible yeah but but yeah like in that performance you know she like i remember that specific i forget what song it was but like it was like just literally going absolutely nuts and it was it it, it, it kind of went above the music like it was just it was something you experienced live mm. and she 
she said, I, I don't know, I don't think I'll ever like this, un, you know, unsurprisingly, but just she gained a little bit more of an appreciation for it just because it was just so much, there was so much to it, like just seeing it happen, like seeing like what went into making that like live on stage. Um, oh, yeah. So, I, yeah, I, mean, I think to, it's, yeah, I think to the same it, degree, like, yeah. Yeah, li- live music is like just live art is just a powerful thing, you know, um, for sure. I mean, it's, I, I always like that. I think about that a lot with free improvisation of just like, I always find it interesting to listen to it, you know, even a recording of it, but to actually be there would be so fucking cool. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> um, maybe that's why Cage has become so, you know, he's so much more of a, like you engage with him on an intel or you have to engage with his work on an intellectual level because you, I mean, you, like you, you literally can't listen to. 433 like like you just you fit you can't do that well technically you can be because it's it's you, yeah you, you're listening to the room around 433 yeah in a way yeah i guess you're not listening to 433 as much as you're listening to life yeah but it's been curated in a way by 433 exactly but i just <laughs> i feel like the average even the most adventurous like just your typical classical listener is just not going to I feel like they're just not gonna. They're not yeah. gonna get. They're not gonna get. And that's not necessarily. Like, I don't mean that negatively. I'm just saying that they're just like, yeah, I don't. I'm not. Not for me. So to yeah, me. I I want to point out because I I feel like as much as I adore this book, there are definitely they, there's one thing that I think was very apparent for me now that I you know have read it for three times now, uh, and it's that there's a lot of hero worship going on when it comes to Cage, um, and. I, I don't know if you got this feeling, but by the end of the book, it almost felt like Kay was, you know, it, Larson was kind of like, like intimating that, you know, oh, Cage is, is complete. You know, he's, he's perfect now, almost in a way that he's, he's like solved it all and he's fine. He's totally enlightened. And it's like, no, like that's, that's not true. Like, and I'm not, I, I guess I might be putting words in her mouth, I guess. I, um... I, I just I kind of get that feeling. I think maybe it's just because of the way it ends, uh, you know, of just how it how abruptly in like the middle of his career it just ends. Um, but like you know, I don't know. It just, it just like Cage is one of those figures for me who I he's like Frank Zappa in that I respect him and his work and his work ethic immensely, but at the same time I you know nonetheless have you know, points that I can sort of pick out that I'm not the biggest fan of. Like, you know, Frank Zappa's sense of humor we've talked about is not one of my favorite things about Zappa's music. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's nice that he's irreverent, but a lot of times his humor humor just falls flat for me. Uh, But for Cage, it's just how he goes on. Like, there's a lot of hypocrisy sometimes with Cage's work, you know, and with Cage as a person, you know, because he goes on about, oh, you know, you got to have nothing and you got to start from nothing, et cetera, et cetera, Zen bullshit, blah, 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 you know? Mm-hmm. And, but, but then, you know, the, like if you actually listen to the Glenn Branca album, uh, Indeterminate Activity of Resultant Masses, mm-hmm. uh, the second track of uh, is literally just an interview with John Cage where he just shits all over Branca's music <laughs> for like 15 minutes. And, and, it, and, like, this was, like, in the 70s, I wanted, 70s or 80s that this was recorded. And it was, like, yeah, so for, for, the, for the guy who said that you got to let your likes and dislikes go and leave them at the door, 
like okay so what are you doing here yeah. you know like and i mean bronco included it because he was so pissed off i think yeah uh, you know it's it's like i mean i would be too if like you know if someone was just shitting on you for that like that much amount of time there was actually like a recording of it i don't know i just like this like there are just these little things that like you know and i think it's worth also mentioning that overall that cage cage tries you know like it feels like you know his intention is to remove intention mm-hmm. in a way and you know to let sounds be themselves yet there's that paradox of how can you like he he intends to let go of intentions but that itself is an intention you could choose not to decide, but you still have made a choice, basically. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you, if you want to quote Rush, yeah, right? Just to kind of tone uh, it down a little bit, but um, yeah. Well, yeah. Just like you know, I I feel like he tries so hard to let the music speak for itself and to let it be nothing, and yet he has to explain it all, you know. And it just feels like like make up your mind almost yeah i, kind I mean of, i think like, like th- that's why like like achieving nirvana is seen as such a you know it's such a almost eternal quest because it's just we as humans the way we're wired i mean even just you know like i mean maybe this isn't there's different ways you could meditate but one of the things that was always tough for me is i just have such an active like short attention span difficulty focusing mm. so that you know if the idea is to like totally clear your mind that's just almost impossible for me oh but, i mean as someone who has a meditation practice it, it it's like it's impossible yeah <laughs> but you're totally right that like, i think you know we, we can talk about um we, you know, we, we could talk about uh, you know what, what was it this like like the different kind like intentionally writing a riff or intentionally writing a melody or you know i feel like you can't like that obviously that's different from like free improv or just spontaneous creation but or in you know, indeterminacy there's still some like even just in that split second you're still there's some intention or like there's some action like it just it's yeah, I don't know. Like it's just—it's almost like so—it's like a rabbit hole. Like it's so—it's so like yeah. interwoven. But to, to your yeah. to your point about a little bit of hero worship, I feel like that's a that's a double or in some ways it's unavoidable. Like to, oh to, yeah, to, definitely. To, to get a book like this, you kind of need someone who's really into their subject matter. But obviously, by the same token, they're 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 really really yeah. into I, it. I, I, it's just like I, I feel like you know there are biographies out there that are willing to be critical of somebody mm, like yeah. uh, one of my favorite biographies is uh, by Neil Gabler it's about Walt Disney and you know he spends like a good couple pages when it comes around to you know World War Two and you know Disney's sort of you know involvement with certain parties in World War Two and he is he like is very clear about you know the parts of it and sort of trying to reestablish a modern you know context for it and sort of you know trying to be as objective as possible like he actually takes that time mm-hmm. whereas like larson it feels like you know like i think probably the one place she's critical of him is is when he's having like all these different affairs with all these different people at once mm-hmm. while he's still married to this woman you know um and even then, she just is like, oh, poor John Cage, he's so confused. Yeah. And it's like, 
Like, yeah, you can be confused and, like, have an affair, you know? Like, but, I mean, at the same time, you're also, like, having an affair with, like, a bunch of people. Yeah. And, like, you know, there's definitely confusion in that. But, like, you know, there's got to be some sort of personal responsibility as well. I don't know. <laughs> it, like, I, I guess it's just, like, it, it, it just felt like John Cage could do no wrong in a way. Um and that that's just not the truth at all you know and it like i think she likes to put it as like oh well you know it's his mistakes that make him who he is and it's like yeah that's true uh but you know nobody's perfect i guess is what i'm trying to say but yeah and all of that being said oh you go ahead like partially i think the almost like the cameos from his personal life i mean towards the beginning when she like the the first full chapter about Cage. It's definitely very much. It's very biographical. So it's not like yeah. It's not like the bi the, like the biographical sections are entirely sporadic. Um, but I think the fact that sometimes they kind of feel like oh we have to talk a little bit about his life. Like there just isn't a lot of time to like just kind of like this happened. He was troubled, like you said, and it's just like all right, moving on. Like there wasn't maybe there wasn't time to really dive into the complexities of uh although i i did appreciate you know talking about um talking about his struggle i mean i kind of wish he's talked about it more actually just like his struggles as, as a gay man at that time like i, I just mm. i found that really interesting like that was again just I, as it, something that i didn't know about him mm. i kind of wish that there was a little bit more about that it's really interesting to see how many gay composers there were mm-hmm. in, like, that time era. Like, it's it's fascinating. Honestly, I mean, you had Henry Cowell famously in this book getting, you know, um, I think he had to serve time in prison, right? Um, you know, but you have someone like Harry Parch, who was also famously gay, you know. Um, I'm trying to think. that There were a couple of, like, other... Oh, I, I a couple of... I think Lou Harrison. Um, there were a couple of some of Cage's cohorts that were just like, you know, gay, you know, and it was, it, it was just really interesting that even at this time, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not like, you know, it, like it's, it's not like after Stonewall, like gay people just suddenly like bloomed into existence, yeah. you know, it's <laughs> like, it, it's, it's been a prevalent thing throughout the history of every, our everyone, entire species, yeah. Have you, ever read you know, ancient, like, so, ancient Greek history by any chance? Yeah. Have you, yeah. you, you ever read any Sappho? Yeah. I mean, fuck man. <laughs> oh, uh, man. yeah. So I, I don't know. It's, I, I, I just find it interesting sort of the, how the avant-garde, you know, kind of got started or at least the modern avant-garde kind of got started from like a bunch of these gay guys, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> I love that. But I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, we're getting around like 50 minutes. So, I, I I mean, I love this book. You know, I I love how just I, I love learning about avant-garde music and like experimental art. And this is like for me kind of the peak of that because it sort of provides a history of it while also providing sort of a way to look at it that I can actually make sense of in a way. Like, um, you know like Zen Buddhism is something that has profoundly affected my own life, you know, and it's just interesting to see, you know, sort of another, you know, sort of, you know, a history of, you know, um, of, of a movement that, you know, I think in a lot of cases gets intellectualized a lot. And 
I, you know, I'm I, I'm not suggesting that Zen, you know, is anti-intellectual. It's more that I, I feel like it. I don't know. I, I feel like this this version of it offers new ideas, and I think on top of that, it's just a great book on sort of giving yourself permission to be yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, and to follow that vision that you have, and that the best art you're ever going to make is the stuff that is truly you and that is truly gained by only being yourself. And I, I just, I, I love that. I love, you know, being, you know, sort of this idea of just having, letting go of these value judgments, you know, that, you know, and I think this is something that I'm still grappling with, but sort of, you know, she talks about this many times is that there is no difference between life and art for a lot of these creators. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's something I still don't quite understand in a way, even though art isn't an integral part of my life. So it's it's just, yeah, I, I really, I you know, despite, you know, some, some issues with, you know, parts of the book, it's one of my favorite books. And it's just something that I love returning to when I'm sort of in, uh, you know, sort of a low point. So, yeah. yeah. I, I mean... I enjoyed this, but regardless, no matter what you can say about, um, you know, about this, it's just such a creative idea that I think ultimately she pulls off really, really well. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. it's, it is not your traditional music biography. It's not your traditional philosophy book. I, I think it's a really creative, you know, combination of the two. I could totally see this being, if it was... Maybe a little bit shorter. I could see this being assigned, maybe in like some college classes. Yeah. Like I, I mean, I could totally see this being. I mean, I mean prompting I, significant discussion. Um, I feel like if you want to read, if you want to learn about, you know, sort of modern classical music, I feel like you read this book and you read Alex Ross's "The Rest Is Noise," and I feel like you know you've probably got as good of a history as you can get without having to buy like you know, a $200 textbook or having to, like, enroll in music history classes. Yeah. Um, like, just, you know, even though, like, you know, it's it's obviously curated in a certain way, you get a lot of important details. I mean, you, you get you get Duchamp, you've got, you know, I mean, most of Cage's, you know, pro- most profound work, but you've got, you know, someone like, you know, talking about Morton Feldman and sort of the invention of graphic scores you know, you've got Lamont Young a little bit. Um, you know, uh, you've got Schoenberg a little bit. You've got a little bit Harry Parch, Henry Cowell. You know, you've, you've got these amazing things. Boulez, um, you know, and it's... The, she does a really good job of sort of giving them all uh, some respective time, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just a great book overall. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it, so... Yeah, no, I, I mean, yeah. it was... Again, I looking at it, it felt almost too. It felt almost like too specific, like you know, because again, I just I thought it was like a Cage biography. I'm like, so what? What is this about? Is it about Zen? Is it about Cage? Like, what? What? What are we? What are we doing here? Yeah. But the way that she pulls it off, it just makes it makes so much sense. It really does. Yeah. And the, 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 the two, yeah. you know, the, the it really does, you know, kind of it's like a yin and yang, like you know the. The cage side really helps explain the Zen side and, and vice versa. Like I feel you. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. The, the whole the whole Zen side I think is is marvelously done. You know, I I feel like it does a great job of explaining it to people who 
don't quite, you know, um, aren't quite able to wrap their heads around, you know, something like, like if they just read like the Diamond Sutra by itself, mm-hmm. uh, which I'll admit, I'm one of those people without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have books on like Zen cones and stuff like that. And I find them fascinating, but I'm never able to be like, oh yeah, that's what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, yeah. Um, okay. But let's, I guess we'll switch gears and uh, talk about albums of the week. So, uh, Scoots, you, you got anything? I do indeed. Um, All right. Went to, I mean, the same run where I got that, uh, that sausage album, which is really, really fun. To <laughs> um, a ton of CDs that I guess to me someone just sold them off in one fell swoop, but a ton of CDs from Dark Descent bands. You know, Dark Descent okay. being like a, a pretty well known. Uh, it's, it's interesting that somebody would sell all those off. I was surprised too because it's not like basically you either buy them from, you know direct from Dark Descent. Yeah. Or, you know, you kind of, like, look on Discogs later, and, and some of the prices I saw, like, it's a, kind of a hot commodity. Uh, so I was, I was surprised anyone sold them, but I certainly, I, I scooped them up. There were three that I found, and, you know, enjoyed all of them. But one, especially, that I'm kicking myself. Like, I knew this came out um, 2017. Like, like, when this came out, I saw it, and I just, for whatever reason, didn't listen to it. This is, this is a great, great death metal record. I really hope... I mean, the good thing about this is that now that like 2017 was a while ago so they're due for a new album and now i'm like actively excited about them uh and that is frenolith and the name of the album is desolate endscape uh i will say that so many of the track titles are just like vintage um just like just such perfect death metal like one is defleshed in ecstasy channeling a seismic eruption you know, deluge of ashes, like just such perfect, you know, just the perfect vibe, like death metal vibe. Yeah. But the music itself, um, I feel like Nile is really, like obviously what people know about them is the fact that George, you know, Kalias drum, you know, he plays really, really fast and obviously the, the Egyptian elements. Uh, I feel like yeah. this, but like Nile has a lot more, like they have some pretty brutal riffing, you know, for some technical ideas. And I feel like Frenolith reminded me a lot about uh, of Nile, like just the, the the kind of the core aspects, death metal aspects of Nile's sound. I thought were on display here, except a lot, you know, a lot grimier, a lot you know heavier with some some death doom. Just like just like it was very very interesting to me that that was like the the main comparison that came to my mind. And I just thought it was great. It was just really, really heavy and intense and just like fast when it needed to be. Um, I also like there were pretty long extended instrumental passages where like, I don't know, just I, I feel like it had a really interesting, unique flow to it. It wasn't just like a lot of bands these days. It's like, you know, you know, maybe they throw a slow like a Death Doom song in the middle of it, but it's pretty much just every song kind of follows a relatively similar blueprint. I thought this, you know, some mm. songs were almost entirely instrumental. Other songs, they really built up and had, you know, vocals at the end. It was just a really nice, it was a nice surprise to find, um, you know, find it relatively cheap. Uh, yeah. And, I, yeah. 
it's interesting the Nile comparison because I I think of Nile as like one of those singular bands in death metal that it's just like how do you pay homage to that without just ripping it off in a way yeah really like there's no they don't take the Egyptian elements at all and I think again yeah people really for for good reason I think the Nile incorporates the Egyptian stuff really like it's really cool but there is some really great death metal underneath and yeah yeah I mean, it, too too bad that hasn't really been the case as of late for Nile. Yeah, but, and, um, and when I when I saw them, they were on Summer Slaughter. So first of all, like last time I saw them, like that one time at the Palladium, the sound quality was absolutely abysmal. Um, <laughs> but it felt like they actively tried to give George, the, the drummer, a night off because it felt like they just picked all of their slower, doomier songs. Like it just felt like there was <laughs> such a like compa- compared to. The, how typically their music, what their music typically sounds like, it was like, this is way too slow for Nile. And I feel like in a live setting, you would really try to amp up the intensity. So, yeah. Um, that yeah. was, I mean, that, that show is disappointing for another. It just, I, I don't know why. I mean, I've been in a show with Palladium since, and the sound quality was not that bad. So I don't, I don't know what happened. I mean, I, I was thinking more just like, I, I, I thought they, their studio output has been kind of eh. Like the last few albums yeah, or so. That too. That too. Very. Um, uh, yeah. It just feels a little stagnant, you know. But I mean, I I'm also kind of a weird Nile fan that like it, like I think Ithophallic is is like their best album. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> that's just me. I, I um, really like uh, Black Seeds of Vengeance. Um, Annihilation of the Wicked is cool. And then, oh, fuck, what is their um, whatever their their debut is? That is, oh, that one's really really good. Um, yeah, I I couldn't tell you. They, they, like some of some of the names are so ridiculous. Um, yeah, I can't remember. Um, you'd have to look it up. But um, I want to kind of talk about my album of the week, and not in a selfish way, but more because it's also a death metal album. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I I was I really honestly I I was thought I was just gonna end up talking about Murzbow, um as my album of the week. But I put this on um, uh, a little bit, like about like an hour before we recorded, and uh, I was really impressed by this. I didn't expect this to be uh, as good as it is. It's uh, the self-titled album by Moral Claps. Okay. Um, yeah, they, they they came out this album this year. I don't really know that much about it. It looks like their debut, um, but it is like really, really well done. Like tech like tech death but with kind of like this avant-garde slant on it so like there are a couple tracks that have like you know sort of like saxophones going and like Mm. you know but but not just like that kind of i don't know like it feels like it these saxes like run the gamut between like actual melodic lines and like just freak outs Mm -hmm. it's awesome and i think probably the biggest thing that made me the most excited was that i i there were actual riffs that i could really like discern mm. like the, and i i feel like such a uh bad metal fan in a way by saying this but I've, i mean i've said this before i that like a lot of death metal for me it's it's hard to like listen in at the actual intric like intricacies that are going on in it and so as a result a lot of riffs really sound the same to me but this was an album that like i like there were some grooves that i was like really surprised that like how much I could really just hang on to them. 
and you know they they're just meaty and just like really like in your face mm-hmm. and it just you know accessible i guess but but not in a pandering way um yeah it was just it was really really good i um I really want to listen to this like a bunch more times, but this is probably the best death metal album I've listened to this year. I mean, to, to, to be fair, I really haven't listened to a ton of death metal albums, let alone just metal albums in general this year, but like really surprised by this. So go check this shit out. Nice. It was pretty high up on Rate Your Music, so I mean, I, I, I feel like people are probably aware of it to a degree, but still. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, the album cover looks super familiar. I just I haven't gotten around to listening to it, but now I am pushing it to the top of my list because that yeah. sounds fantastic. Dude, I, l- let me know what you think because it it was really interesting. And in, in the last track, they they, I don't know, it felt like the track kind of devolved into like this, like freak out of like voices. Like it, it almost felt like they had turned from like a uh like a tech death band into like like almost like a performance art project in a way um and it worked like it really worked it didn't feel like it was it was like a like um just kind of like oh we'll we'll, we'll shove this here for you know like like, sort of like I, i had undertow on the other day and like the last track on that you know you have to wait through until you get to track 69 you know and then it's it's not really a track. It's more like three minutes of like kind of a song, and then just like a high pitched whine for the rest of like the fifteen <laughs> minutes. You know, yeah. like the, 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 this felt like it was an actual contribution to the album. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah, just that, great, great. Yeah, that, that's long been a. I mean, just in general about different elements, like non metal elements in 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 death metal specifically, about other genres where the way they're integrated where are they actually part of the composition or are they just like yeah that's that's always when someone says songs avant-garde or experimental metal and you, you have to be, take that with a grain of salt because you're like well what yeah. what makes it like especially when you say avant-garde death metal it's like oh there's a saxophone in one track and then you listen well, to, the, yeah that's definitely why i'm saying that i i think it's more of like a tech death album yeah. with like avant-garde leanings like it's yeah. not like you're listening to this and you're like, oh yeah, like it's not like this is like fucking like Habardo or something like that. Yeah, you know, it's not like it's completely restructuring everything you've ever known about metal. It's it's more like it it, it takes some really interesting risks, uh, but at the end of the day, they they aren't you know massive risks, I guess. Yeah, but they nonetheless mesh together. Like it's it's just proof that you you don't need to do something you know like incredibly new to still s- sound original yeah i mean I yeah i wasn't yeah. you know that's a good point i wasn't saying you were saying that but definitely when yeah. people people bring up like oh this is so like so crazy so experimental like they incorporate you know saxophone xyz and it's like it's it's in the intro and then that's it or like you know, there's like a quick outro or like this in- interlude or um like they take a break for a sax break and then the death metal starts back up again. It'd be kind of like if someone like there's a great track on uh, colored sands with strings, you know, where, yeah. And, but that's, that's not, it would be, I feel like sometimes that's how people pitch things. Like, Oh man, like they they make it seem like that's a greater part of the, of the album than, 
it actually is. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the saxophones show up on multiple tracks, but it's not like it's it's not a gimmick, but it's also not you know up doesn't feel like a permanent part of the music at the same time. Like it it has this weird kind of balance between those two like polarities in a way. Um, yeah, I'm just I, I guess it's just worth pointing that out because it's not like I I feel weird calling it avant garde mm-hmm. in a way. But I also feel like there's enough weirdness going on that it isn't just like a tech death album. Because I mean, I, and you know, on top of that, I really love the vocals. Like it didn't feel like I feel like every tech death album has like the same vocals, and th- this was very different. Mm-hmm. And just like I, I enjoyed that. So, all right. In any case, uh, we will talk to you guys next week. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. And uh, if you're interested, uh, you know, if you want to hear more, just, you know, listen to us on uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Android Podcasts, anywhere you can get a podcast, basically. Uh, we're on all of it. Uh, if you follow us on Anchor to, you know, whatever works for you. And uh, definitely be sure to follow us on Twitter. And if you ever have any suggestions, topics you want us to talk about or questions, anything like that, uh, be sure to email us. Yeah. Uh, we're at, at Seishira Podcast on Twitter. And our email, I think, is Podcast at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, as always, thanks for listening. Yeah, appreciate it a lot. Bye.